And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Full 60 featuring Craig Custance and presented by The Athletic. Each week, we'll dive into the biggest stories in hockey while bringing in unique voices to entertain and explain all aspects of the game. Hey, this is Craig, and welcome to this week's episode of The Full 60. And I am thrilled to be joined by, and I'm happy to say it's the Athletics' Ian Mendez. He's, he's a, we've called him other things in the past, uh, other companies at least, a, attached to his name. Finally, we got him under the right side of the ledger here. He has been called a national treasure in Canada, and that's that's a fact. I, I, that is, this, I am not making that up. Uh, he is, and I want him on, we'll talk a little Ottawa to start because he's so plugged in there but ian has done so much in his career has so many great stories i just love diving into that how people end up from being a mascot to working in pr to working in radio tv the path people know my obsession with that and ian is somebody i think we can all learn from ian Thank you for doing this. How are you? I, I listen. You've set the bar high here, Craig. So I, I thought everybody had to be a mascot at some point to get into this industry. You, you, you were never a <laughs> no, that's right. you were never a mascot. <laughs> I was Sparty for at Michigan State University. For no, I wasn't strong enough. He's ripped. If you've ever seen Sparty, they wouldn't even let me near him. Oh my gosh! I did one of the. This we're already off track. One of the first interviews I ever did at Michigan State was this with, with this guy named John Spirit, Johnny Spirit who would paint his body and ride his bike to every Michigan State away game. Um, and this guy was an interesting fella. And I remember doing an on-TV, one of the things with Johnny Spirit, um, during a, a volleyball game in East Lansing, Michigan. So I, 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 I've interviewed mascots. I don't, I don't even know if he's a mascot. I wouldn't say mascot. Well, he's no, a, if, if, if you spoke to him, he's not a mascot. He's not right? a mascot. That, that's the number one rule is, as a mascot. You can't say anything. Did you read the Sharky story? I, I, you know, as somebody oh my who's gosh, been being there, suspended? Being, yeah. being suspended in the air yeah. and never breaking character. I would have ripped the head off of my shark costume so fast to signal for the, like the fire crew or something to get me out of there. Oh, yeah. Kevin Kurz did such a great job in that story because the number of people that he got to, whether it was Mike Ricci or just the, the broadcasters at the game, like that was such a well-done story. Uh, that was, yeah, that was, that was top-notch. It was amazing. It was great. And what I loved about it, like I talked to Kersey about it afterwards, and and you, the, my favorite part was the coaches that were behind the bench, Daryl Sutter and Scotty Bowman. I mean, you know those guys are as serious. And the idea of them like having to weigh a human life in the balance versus like starting the game on time and how frustrating they were, I loved that stuff. Yeah. I, I, if you had to handpick like two coaches that – probably would have just no not not that many coaches would have patience but those guys would be on the short list of like just they have no time for a mascot being stuck would be Daryl Sutter 1 and probably Scotty Bowman 2. Oh, it was unbelievable. Um all right, let's let's talk a little bit a little Ottawa Senators before we get into some of the incredible stories of your career. But and, and I want to do it in big picture terms for two reasons. One, we're not dropping this episode for a couple of days. I'm always reticent to get into trade deadline or in the moment stuff, and all of a sudden there's a huge trade. I would like your assessment for the kind of casual hockey fan that hasn't been knee deep in in Ottawa, where this team is at. I think there was some thought that hey, they you know they signed a couple of good players. You know here they they're bringing Mount Murray. They're addressing. They're maybe turning the corner, and I don't know if that's happening. Where would you? Where, how far from the corner are they in Ottawa? So, okay, so here's the fascinating thing, Craig. If you look at Ottawa the last four seasons, okay, including this one, uh, they've, they've finished in, in 31st place, 30th place, 30th place, and this year, as we're recording this podcast, uh, they are 29th overall, okay? So they've basically been a bottom three team each of the last four seasons. And yet, this year, there's a ton of optimism around them. It's weird. It's like... You would think that they are 20th overall right now and on the precipice of making the playoffs the way some people are talking. And yet you look at the standings, you're like, nope, they're still a bottom three team. But 
where I will give them a little bit of credit is, and I think everybody who's watched hockey in the last couple of years would agree that the Ottawa Senators, for the better part of 18 months to two years, were the biggest dumpster fire in hockey. And it wasn't even close. And now, I think we can agree, the Buffalo Sabres have firmly wrestled that mantle away. And Ottawa has at least, (laughs) I think we can agree, the Ottawa Senators have moved out of the embarrassment zone and into... uh, into the you know the depths of the rebuild, and I think that they're close. I think that maybe they're going to have a chance to make the playoffs next year. But if they go back to the old division uh, format, do I think they'll be better than Tampa? No. Boston? No. Toronto? No. Florida? No. Well, there's four teams right there that I don't think they're going to be better than. So right. I still think they're a ways away from being a legitimate playoff team, but they've moved out of the embarrassing zone, and they've got a good core of young players here. So the optimism is just because Buffalo's worse. Is that where yes. we're at in Ottawa? <laughs> but look, but we'll take it. I think people will take it in this market. Like, and yeah, look, you've been in, like, it's been tough in yeah, Detroit. I know sure. last couple of years, but I don't feel like at any point the Red Wings have been like this low hanging fruit uh, embarrassment of a franchise. And that's the one thing you don't want to be. You don't want to be the Miami Marlins or the New York Knicks or the Cleveland Browns. Right, and that—that's kind of what Ottawa was for for a couple of years, and that's unfortunately that's what Buffalo is uh, right now. So, Ian, if you remove the Buffalo comparison, if you say they're a playoff team right now, and Ottawa's at the bottom with the, the Detroit and, and whomever, do you think do you think there's more critical eye on uh, you know because there have been you know Matt Murray or whatever you want to say, there's been some mistakes made. Do you think there's more of a critical eye on them if if Buffalo's better? Yeah, I think, look, that's a fair point, right? Like, I think a lot of the oxygen in the National Hockey League has gone towards Buffalo in the last, you know, two months, like where people are looking at them and saying, yeah, that's a dysfunctional organization. And Ottawa is just kind of taking a sidestep to the left and being, you know, kind of happy. It's it's a fair question. I think, again, when you look at the overall stand, like, I think if we had looked at the overall standings in January and said, this is where Ottawa is going to be. Mm-hmm. I think there'd be a lot of people in this market that would be really disappointed, but I think there would be a lot of people in the hockey world that would say, yep, that's pretty much where we thought Ottawa was going to be, that this was going to be another tough year. But where I do think, though, Craig, that they've made some strides is they've got the pieces now. Like yes. now you can see Brady Kachuk is what he is going to be, and Thomas Shabbat is, uh, you know, a terrific defenseman. And Drake Batherson has come in and he's been a really nice fit. And and same with Josh Norris. Like they've got some pieces. And now you're seeing them. And now it's not just uh, hope. It's actually you're seeing them. And so I do think that they've got the right pieces in place. They've had some obvious missteps along the way. um, and, And the ability to retain star players has been their big issue. As long as they can retain. I'll tell you this, Craig. If they can retain Brady Kachuk... Uh, this summer with some sort of, uh, even if it's a, just a three-year deal, but get him signed to a contract extension and there's going to be a lot of angst that disappears from this marketplace. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's because people have been burned, right? You just look at the, the talent exodus. And I like, I mean, you did a story recently that had, here was all the former senators versus the current team. And there, I mean, there's um, there's been a lot of great players leaving. I'm sure Ottawa fans are a little bit scarred by it. I what I would be curious to get your thoughts on. We've seen you're right. The heart, the heavy lifting you would think is done in the rebuild, right? Like they have these great core pieces that are legitimately talented players. You can sit there, and I don't care what city they're in, you're excited about them. Um, I was saying the same thing about Buffalo again, not to bring it back to them, but you sat there and said, okay, they've got the franchise defenseman, they've got you know Iko, the franchise centerman. You liked even some of the other players around them, and you're like, okay, the hard part's over. And for whatever reason, these t- it, it, it always takes longer for these teams to turn the corner, even after you get the hardest parts, which is the the high end, elite, skilled players. Like, what do you what do you think this team still needs to fill out um, beyond kind of the, the 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 top of the draft players? Yeah, and I think this is I think Buffalo and Edmonton serve as the cautionary yes. tales, don't they? Of uh, just because you win the lottery and have four or five tough years, it's not an automatic ticket to success. And I think that it's a cautionary tale. And I think when you look at Buffalo and Edmonton, for the most part, their lack of goaltending in the last few years has, has really been a, an issue. I think Edmonton has kind of solved it this year with Mike Smith. But like, if you're Ottawa, that's the biggest concern. I think, Craig, like when they signed Matt Murray to that extension, I thought, 
I didn't mind the trade. Like, you're only giving up a second-round pick. I didn't mind the trade. I didn't like the contract. I always felt like, why not just give Matt Murray a one-year deal, make it a prove-it year, and if he's worth it, he's worth it. If he's not, he's not. But uh, they gave him – I don't blame Matt Murray at all for taking – someone's going to give me four years, $25 million. Uh, let's go ahead and do it. But if you talk to the people who covered the Penguins in the last 18 months of uh, Matt Murray's time there, and you talk to us in Ottawa – it's the same scouting report. It's inconsistencies and injury. So Ottawa's big issue has been goaltending. And I think if they can get that solved, um, they could be a playoff team next year. But you're getting 870, 880 save percentage. You're going to be languishing at the bottom of the standings. But if they can get some some competent uh, and above average goaltending, I think they have a chance to maybe uh, make some noise in the next year or two. How do we feel in general terms about the return you, you you touched on the exodus of great players um how do we feel now that we have some time to measure about the return Pierre Dorian got for for the players the, those high end players because I, I like the lowest and I was completely wrong here so I'm going to say that first and foremost the lowest trade grade I've ever given out I think in my career was on the Eric Carlson trade I just did not like it from an Ottawa perspective and it's turned out to be a great haul and you look at where Carlson now like it's I was completely wrong, and that was that. And the deal is way better than I think we thought in the moment. And it's hard to measure trades in the moments. But now that we have a little bit of time, how do you think in general they 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 performed in that part of the rebuild? Yeah, and you know what? It, it is. Fun. You ask anybody in the hockey world the day after Pierre Dorian made that trade mm. uh, with San Jose in 2018. And I think we were all giving an uh, had the red marker out and giving him an yes. F. Like yeah. you traded a generational defenseman in his prime, and you you didn't get one piece back that anyone was like oh wow that's a you didn't, you didn't get Timo Meyer and you didn't get Thomas Hurdle like you didn't get anything back other than the first round pick and let's be honest here if San Jose performs the way we all thought San Jose would that pick is somewhere between like fifteen and twenty five but San Jose inexplicably kind of bottoms out last year and that gives Ottawa Tim Stutzla and that's what saves the trade because. Mm-hmm. Stutzla, right now, you wouldn't trade Stutzla for Carlson straight up if you're Ottawa, based on age, based on contract, all of that. So they they have come out, they have turned that trade from a a letter grade F to a letter grade A in the span of two years. But the one that they, that remains an F for me is Mark Stone. And like, Mm. Craig, Mark Stone, like, I still would love, I wish that there was a live webcam in the room of the Vegas, uh, brass when they engineered that deal I, I i honestly because they know like like uh bob lowes who who used to work with ottawa runs um uh the scouting department in vegas he's known mark stone since he was a kid he knew what he was getting and kelly mccrimmon knew mark stone since he was a kid like they knew what they were getting that they engineered that deal and then signed stone to an eight-year contract extension within 30 minutes of that trade and Ottawa didn't even get a first-round pick in return. Like, I know Brandstrom's a high-end prospect, but to me, like, they, they paid a rental price for Stone and got him for eight years. And it's, it's, it's a mind-blowing deal because two years later, Eric Brandstrom is not a regular in the NHL. They didn't get a first-round pick. And I think you can make a case that this season, Mark Stone's a Hart Trophy candidate. This year, I think he's a Hart Trophy candidate. And you let him go, and you didn't get... A first round pick and they got him for eight years and they 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 signed the extension in 30 minutes like you can't even order a pizza <laughs> and have it delivered to your home in the amount of time it took vegas to sign a contract extension with mark stone like that yeah. it was mind-blowing to me then and it is mind-blowing to me now that they let that happen yeah i i think that's fair and so what i'm trying to figure out is if they I mean, luck is always a part of it. And, you know, the, there was some luck involved in the Eric Carlson trade. You also, you know, by incorporating draft picks and in, in, in various options into a, a trade, you you increase the upside. So you want to give a little bit of credit there. But, yeah, I, I think I, I think that's a fair assessment. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned Stutzla as kind of part of that package. How, how has he looked to you? What, what, has your opinion changed on him? I mean, people loved him right away, so there's no surprises there. What are your early impressions there? You know, I think if you went back and redrafted the top three from 2020, Craig, mm-hmm. uh, Alexis Lafreniere, Quinton Byfield, Tim Stutzla, I think there would be a lot of people that would be 
tempted to maybe take Tim Stutzla. Like he's been a ton of fun to watch. Um, he's explosive. He's kind of had his ups and downs, but you would expect that. You're a teenager in the National Hockey League. Look at Lafreniere. He's had his uh, yeah. challenges, but you can see it. Like I, I think, and this is an organization that over the years, Craig, they've had Marion Hosa mm-hmm. and Jason Spezza and Eric Carlson, and you know, go through. They've had some high end. Uh, Hall of Fame caliber type of players. I think Tim Stutzla has an opportunity when it's all said and done to be the most talented player that's ever played for the Ottawa Senators. And I think that's saying something. So uh, I think he's he's going to be a ton of fun to watch. He just needs to get a little bit more experience, a little bit stronger. Uh, but the speed is there. The vision is there. The skill is there. I think in, in two or three years from now, you're going to be talking about this guy as like a kind of like a 30, 35 goal scorer uh, on a consistent basis in the NHL. Um, that's great because those are the players you need. You you have to hit on those picks. Um, and, and so it all comes back, I guess, to your one of your earlier points is are the so you you did the hard part. You landed these players. Is Brady Kachuk going to stick? Want to stick around? Are these players in for the long haul? Is ownership? I don't know. Stable is the right word. Is ownership committed enough to to pay the players with it? Where do you think the the organization is at on that? Like, if you were projecting into the future and these the ability to keep all these players. Well, and I think it's really important that we go back and we use uh, the words of Pierre Dorian and the words of Eugene Melnick. And I don't want to say like use the use the, their own words against them, but use yeah. their own words to hold them to a degree of accountability. And when they torch this thing. Uh, look, this was a scorched earth approach. This yeah. was a uh, like this is about as big of a teardown as we've ever seen in pro sports. Like you don't often see. Like the only other one I could really think of is like the Montreal Expos and the Miami Marlins. Like just tear it to the ground, burn it down, get rid of anybody and everybody. But it was all done under the premise of we're going to come back, and between 2021 and 2025, we're going to be in a position to compete for the Stanley Cup and we're going to spend to the cap. Their words, right. not ours. Yeah. And so it it all comes down to Brady Kachuk. And, and just like I think mm. it came down to Mark Stone, like if they could have signed Mark Stone, Craig, I think a lot of the fan base, like they use certain players as like uh, like a measuring stick. Like, it, like, like if Mark Stone signed on the dotted line here, people would say, hey, if it's good enough for Mark Stone, it's good enough for me. Like right. I, in, I inherently trust that guy. Brady Kachuk has the same sort of uh, relationship with the fans, where the fans say they love um, they love Brady Kachuk. So if Kachuk signs on the dotted line on a on a contract extension, Ottawa fans will be like, "Yep, that's good enough for me." So that's that's really what it comes down to. It, it's going to be fascinating because I think Kachuk's going to have a ton of leverage. There's the COVID landscape. There's the Senators landscape. Like that. This is going to be one of the more interesting RFA contract negotiations I think that we've, that we've seen in a long time. Well, it's interesting because the Kachucks, so, you know, in Toronto, there's always these versions of Toronto players wanting to go back and it's Stamkos and it's Tavares and it's like whoever's even close to free agency, they want to play for the, you know, there's always this Toronto speculation. I think in the U.S., there's, there, you know, we'd like to see the Kachucks back in the U.S. I don't know how, how the Kachuk <laughs> family feels about yeah. that. But it's, it, it is like, the, like that's become almost the first family of American hockey, the Kachucks. And they're playing in Ottawa and Calgary, right? Like that's, I, I think there's people that are like, hey, it's only a matter of time until they, they come to the rightful place, you know? And I yeah. don't know if they feel that way at all. But Well, and, I, and I'm sure if you're a St. Louis Blues fan, you're like, hey, mm. these kids grew up in you know, in and around St. Louis. Like, why wouldn't we bring them home? And I think it's it's amazing that you mentioned the Kachucks might be the first family of American hockey, and yet all of them got their careers started in Canada, right? Like That's where right. Keith, Keith was great in Winnipeg and, uh, you know, ended up meeting his wife from there. And then they, I, th- I think they have a great, um, I think they have a great affinity for Canada. Yes. But I, I do think you're right. Like there's probably at some point uh, in every, I, I would imagine that in, at some point in every, Canadian kids' blood. There's a desire to play for a Canadian team, and it, and, and I think the reverse is true. If you're an American kid, like why wouldn't you want to play your career at some point, um, either in your hometown or your home country? I think it's only natural. Yeah, what I have found with players, and this is to generalize a little bit with American players, there's for the players who start out in Canada, um, they tend to be okay with it, right? Like 
it's the ones that, that you have a lot of Americans in the States playing in the States that have all the Canadian teams on their no trade list. They've never played there. There's yeah. this fear of playing, you know, with the Canada media and the scrutiny and I don't want to play in Winnipeg. Like that's all very real. Um, but then the ones that end up playing there and manage it well, it's like, oh, okay. You know, there's something to be said for the, being the best, ga- biggest game in town. And so I, I wonder if it, it's almost advantageous that they did start there, right? So there's no, there's no fear of the unknown. Yeah, no, it's it, it is a great point. Like there, it, it is true that a lot of American uh, players, I think, come to Canada. They do love the fact that the way we treat hockey in this country is the way the NFL gets treated in the United States, right? Like it is yeah. the king pin sports. Whereas at times, depending on your your market in the NHL, sometimes the NHL is third, fourth, maybe even fifth on the uh, on the totem pole. So there is certainly a a love of uh, of that. But yeah, I think when you factor in. Like, I wonder, like, if you ever pulled players aside and said, okay, uh, based on the taxes, Mm -hmm. the weather, and, like, media scrutiny, like, I wonder what they would pick as the biggest deterrent to playing in Canada. Like, part of me wonders if it's the weather is as is big a factor as the taxes and and the and the and the negative scrutiny that we sometimes give our players. I you know the the complaint I get and I, I, this tends to come th- through more when you talk to agents but they'll say it's the media. It's the and maybe not in Ottawa. I don't know if that's the case in Ottawa. It, I, that's kind of its own unique group but I, like the, that that tends to be something that wears these these players down at time. And it's understandable. Yeah. yeah, I think I think so. I think you go into you go to Montreal or Toronto and you try and uh, operate in that fishbowl. It's you know why I always think to myself too. If I was a player, like I wouldn't you rather go like if you, as long as you had a chance to win, wouldn't you rather go to like L.A. or Anaheim where you mm. could just go? Like I remember years ago talking to Saku Koivu after he went to Anaheim, and Saku was just like he could go to the mall, uh, he could go, he just go for dinner, he could do whatever he wanted in Anaheim because nobody really bothered him or in Montreal he couldn't go to the grocery store without being stopped by you know a half dozen people yeah. and and you know I always wonder like I, players would probably appreciate just being able to be themselves yeah I, the, the the flip side is when you talk to people you hear this sometimes in Florida I actually heard this when I was covering Atlanta way back in the day and in this this became a thing that there was this this almost this feeling that you could there wasn't enough pressure on the players in some of these warm cities or, you know, warm weather cities or non-traditional hockey markets. Now that's been, you know, now that you see LA success and Dallas, like that's kind of been swept aside, but there is, you know, you can play in Florida and there's get away with anything basically. And, and no one's going to say anything, right? Like there's there, I know there's some teams that like, I, I wish there was more media scrutiny. I guess there's a sweet spot somewhere. Yeah, you know what? I, I just it actually just you just brought up a memory for me. So I was covering there was a, a the senators were down in Florida years ago, and this is when Nathan Horton was with the uh, mm-hmm. Florida Panthers, and I, I, I'm sitting there and I'm watching a Panthers practice, and Nathan Horton uh, goes apoplectic. Like I remember he smashed a water a stick uh, through a water bottle, and he was got into it with his assistant coach. Like they got into a screaming match. Mm. Okay. And then that was the end of it. And I remember thinking like, oh, wow, like I can't wait to see this story blow up and whatever. We went to go speak to uh, the coach. And I want, I want to say it was Peter DeBoer, but if I'm wrong, yeah. I'm wrong. But anyway, right. nobody nobody from the local media brought it up. It was almost like they didn't, they didn't care or they didn't notice. And I thought, holy cow, like if this had happened in Ottawa – or if this had happened in Toronto and a player got into a verbal jawing match with a coach and slammed his stick and threw a water bottle and stormed off the ice, like it would lead Sports Center, it would lead the news, it would like, and here it was just like nobody even nobody even cared. Hmm. No, I mean it's it's yeah. So maybe in that case it's a ben- beneficial to the team. It's 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 crazy how we were just having this conversation this morning with. Uh, we were talking about the ESPN deal in the United States um, with some editors and and what impact we think that's going to have on the NHL in the States specifically because um, I think part of the issue is, is you know, in the U.S. Sports Center uh, and ESPN wasn't, wasn't their product. They weren't interested. And I, I think on some level that's going to, you know, that's going to change things. It's going to make it more of a focus. Now, are they going to cover Florida Panthers practice? Probably not. But I, I do think that gap is probably going to close a little bit. Yeah, no, it's you're right. It, it it's going to be really interesting to watch that gap in the next whatever five years, ten years, 
to kind of just see how this how this all shakes out. Yeah. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. So, Ian, let me, let's start with this. Um, why I've always kind of admired you from afar, and we don't, like, you and I don't know each other that well. Like, we're, we've kind of operated independently, and, but I think I've always had a healthy admiration and respect for you because you seem to be one of those people that you're not just trying to hang on to your job. Like, you, you're constantly looking, and I don't mean to put words in your mouth, and you can correct <laughs> me, but you seem to be looking for challenges for to way to grow as a person to make sure you're not um you have some work life balance have is that fair to say and like how did you how has that kind of led you to where you are today yeah you know what and i appreciate that um you know that that you would you know kind of have a a little bit of respect for me professionally cuz you know obviously i think all of us that work in the industry um you know look at you craig and think like you know you've reached the pinnacle of of kind of writing and um you know, I, so I just, you know, first of all, just know that the uh, the admiration is certainly mutual here that, uh, that I've always looked at you and thought like, wow, like what a great writer, what a great storyteller. Um, and so th- this is this is great for me to be able to, to, to work with you and, uh, and to chat with you. And yeah, you know what? I think the biggest thing for me is when I was working at Sportsnet, which, you know, was my TV job, so to speak. You know, we, our our daughter was born, and she had some significant health challenges. Mm-hmm. Like I'm talking, like we had to send her off for brain surgery at uh, at nine days old. Okay, so when you hand your your child over at nine days old for brain surgery, I think it ends up impacting every facet of your life, and I think mm-hmm. it, it ends up changing your priorities and changing your uh, your focus in life. So I think ever since then, and that was in 2004. So that was, you know, wow, 17 years ago. I think I've always been one of those people that like, you know what? My job is what I do, but it's not who I am. And I've always, like, it's funny because I, you know, I just wrapped up my first uh, year teaching a journalism class here in Ottawa and, and I do a lot of talks with high school students. And the one thing I tell them is just remember this, when you, when you pass away, no one's putting your resume on your tombstone. Mm-hmm. That's it. And so I've always kind of thought of that as um, I think for me to be really good at my job, you can still be good. This is going to sound really counterintuitive, but I think you can be really good at your job, even if your job is not your number one priority in your life, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, I think I think it's healthier that way, to be honest. Yeah. Um. So, all right. So it's 2004. What's your daughter's name? Yeah, uh, Alyssa. 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 Yeah. So, so... Can you, what was your work life like in 2004? So at that point, you're on TV for Sportsnet traveling, right? Like that's yeah. full full bore and like that's such a heavy load. Can you just kind of take us into that moment and what, what your life was like? Yeah. Like I'll tell you, like when I was working for Sportsnet, Craig, it was by the end of it, I was on the road for anywhere between 125 and 150 days a year, 150. So if you think about that, that's about five months out of 12. Like that's almost, you know, that's like almost like 40% of the year you're gone. And I think when you have kids, um, you, you, you feel a little bit like a phony, like that, you know, you're this involved mm. dad or you're an involved parent. And it's like, uh, meanwhile, you were, weren't you just in Buffalo for like eight days or weren't you in <laughs> Pittsburgh? Like, how are you parenting? So for sure. Like, and it, it, it was earth shattering to me. Like, I'll never forget, like, that this was uh, Ottawa just got knocked out by Toronto again in the Stanley Cup playoffs in 2004, and I, the Senate, the day I, we found out my uh, my daughter had an issue, 
was the day the Senators fired Jacques Martin. In fact, I'll never forget it. I missed Jacques Martin's final kind of the availability, the press conference, because we went for an ultrasound and they came back and they're like, we're not seeing your daughter's brain. And there's like, and so it was like having the rug pulled out from, uh, from underneath me. And it, it, you know, the, the one person that I just, I have so much respect for was, uh, Scott Morrison was my boss. I think a lot of hockey fans will remember Scott Morrison from his time at Sportsnet, one of the great writers uh, that has covered the game. And Scott was my boss at the time. And I'll never forget him phoning me, Craig, the day that we found out everything uh, went to hell with our daughter. And um, him just telling me, listen, you take as much time as you need. Mm-hmm. You don't worry about work. You don't worry about anything. Just worry about yourself and your family. And, I, and that, that always meant a lot to me. I have so much respect and time for Scott Morrison because when when we were going through a tough stretch, uh, he he didn't care about uh, my coverage of the Ottawa Senators. He only cared about uh, kind of me as a person. So was there a point where you were like consciously said, okay, this I, I can't keep doing these things in parallel, this career where I'm traveling for half the year versus being the father I wanted to be? Or was it like, okay, I consciously have to look – for something else? Or what was that process like as you kind of reassess things? You know, as I look back, Craig, you know what the worst thing is? Mm. Is that there was no breaking point. That there was no, like, I think a lot of times you look back and you're like, okay, well, this was my breaking point. You know yeah. what's even, you know what I would argue is worse than a breaking point? Is like a super slow erosion. And okay. that's what was happening. Yeah. You know, like I think either you, but either way you end up in the same place. Either you have this moment where you break apart and it's dramatic or the erosion takes place over time, but either way, you're going to end up as a broken person. And so I think for me, I was, I was going through the erosion process where it was like, like, it was like a malaise where it's like, and I, there was like a little bit of a resignation to, uh, doing that. And I think you think back and you think, man, when I was in journalism school and I was a kid, if someone had told me you're going to the Stanley cup and my initial reaction would be like, I guess like that, (laughs) that's not a great feeling, right? Like, so, you know, I'll, the, the 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 end for me was the 2013 Stanley Cup final, Chicago Boston, and I remember being in the Boston uh, what do you call it uh, TD Garden, and it was game game six, and I'm texting my wife. It's one nothing Boston. I want to say with like two minutes left, I'm like, I text her. I'm like, I'm going to Chicago for game seven, and uh, we were so um, uh, I was so disappointed, and I remember thinking to myself, Craig, I'm disappointed. To go to a game seven in a Stanley Cup final, like what? This is this is where I'm at. And then of course, uh, was it Dave Boland and yes. uh, Blackhawks scored? Blackhawks scored yeah. two times in like whatever thirty seconds, and uh, and I got my ticket home. But I remember thinking to myself, you know, you might want to look for a change in careers if you're not excited to cover game seven and Stanley Cup final. Like maybe it's time. And I think because I had covered a couple of Olympics and I covered a FIFA World Cup and I covered a bunch of World Series and I covered a bunch of Stanley Cup, I think I had kind of checked everything off of my list right. that I wanted to do as a TV reporter. And I think it was uh, it was time for me to, to make an exit there. Was there anybody you leaned on for advice at that point where you're like, okay, this, you know, I, I need a transition. What, you know, what did that look like? No, you know, and I, and I, you know, and I, and I kind of wish that I, uh, that I had, like in that transition, I didn't really lean on anybody, but, um, you know, I just knew that it was time for me to, to make a change. And, you know, the, the amazing thing was, uh, where I decided to make the switch or how I got the, <laughs> the switch to TSN radio was, it's funny because I, that year, 2013, Craig, I had spent a good chunk of the year, uh, in New York covering the lockout. So like mm-hmm. the fall of 2012 and into 2013, then I covered the Stanley Cup playoffs, which ended up being that Chicago-Boston series. And I we had so many uh, airline points that I was able to take the end of 2013. I took my family on a 10-day, like every expense covered trip to California. So uh, return flights, 10 nights in like the high-end Marriott hotels because, you know, when you're in hockey, it's always a Marriott. And um, and the rental car, everything was taken care of. And while we were on that trip, I got a text from someone who worked at TSN Radio saying, hey, we got an opening. Any chance you're interested? And I thought, you know, it's it's somewhat fitting that I'm on a, a all-expense-paid trip that was done because I'm on the road 
that I think I might have an opening to go join TSN Radio, and that's mm-hmm. honestly how it uh, how it came to be. So, I mean, you to get to the point where you are is such a hard mountain to climb, right? Like you have, you need some luck. You need to work a ton. Was there any fear of okay, what am I giving up here to to transition? No, and you know what? Okay. And I think, and I, but I think part of that was um, I never, and I think this is also what made it easy for me to move over to the athletic. Is I don't think I've ever identified myself as being a reporter. Like mm-hmm. I know that's again, that's what I do, but I, you know, I I had no problem leaving uh, the the bright lights of TV and the national stage and all that. I had no problem leaving that behind. Like I I wasn't one of those people. Um, that was kind of seduced by television that like I loved TV and you know, because there are, and you probably know there's people in our industry that they like being on TV and I get that. I, I, I understand it can be a pretty um, intoxicating feeling to be on TV and, and have people, you know, uh, follow your work and that type of thing. But that was never the case for me. So I think it was a very easy switch because um, I also felt like just, I had kind of done, like I said, I, I think, I had covered everything that I could have uh, dreamed of covering in TV. I just, I didn't have anything else left to to check off. And I was ready to, I was like, I wonder if I can go be a talk show host because that's a real challenge. And that's kind of what, uh, that's what led me to make the switch. Are you a, like a very, um, like strict goal type person? Like, do you sit there and say, okay, this is what the next three months, five years, 10 years are going to look like as you kind of accomplish things and check boxes? No, <laughs> no. I, I laugh at the, I, I, you know what? We should bring my wife on here and I, I, Hey, is, is Ian organized? And she will yeah, tell yeah, yeah. you, I am like the least organized person. And I've tried not to, I, and I, I, I think it's really important not to set specific goals because I think if you tell yourself, and especially like for younger reporters and uh, younger people in the industry, if you say to yourself like, Hey, by the time I'm 30, I want to mm-hmm. be doing this. Then when you get to your 30th birthday, if you're not doing it, you're going to feel like you're a disappointment. So I've never been a, uh, you know, this, I'm going to cross this off my list and this off my list. I've just been uh, very much uh, a person that tries to kind of just try and yeah, challenge myself professionally. And anytime that I feel like I'm getting uh, too comfortable with what I'm doing or that it's mm-hmm. too easy, it's probably a sign that maybe it's it's time to to move along. And that's kind of how I felt in my my, my previous jobs. Um, so you, you said you don't identify yourself as, as a reporter. So like, in, not to get like too deep or, or whatever, but when, okay, when, what do you, how do you identify yourself? Is it, what do you yeah, label yourself? I, I know it's weird because you, you go look at my Twitter bio and it's like, uh, it says here you're a sports reporter, right? So, uh, it's, <laughs> well, it's funny because I'm this, I'm like you. So I'm, I'm just a, like, I, I, everything you're saying I relate to, right? So yeah. I, I know it. So I can relate very closely to all of this and, but I, I just, I like to talk it through, right? Cause I can relate yeah. so closely. Yeah. It, you know, and I think, so one of the coolest things that I, I don't know that everybody who listens to this will understand what the sport of ring at is, but ring at is, um, this sport that was developed for 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 girls when there was no hockey allowed for girls back in the 1950s and 60s. Mm-hmm. But the sport is still very much alive in Canada. Even though girls are playing hockey, there's lots of girls who play ringette. And I would tell you, Craig, the the most rewarding thing of my life, uh, my sporting life in the last anything. And I've covered Sid Crosby's uh, gold medal winning goal, and I've covered the World Series, and uh, like all these big moments. The most satisfying thing I've ever done in sports is coaching these young girls. And I do it. And I, and, and so if you're asking me, how would I like to be like the, my favorite thing is when, uh, I'm on the ice with these girls and someone just says, coach Ian, Hey, coach Ian, should we do this? Coach Ian. That's my favorite thing in the world. And when I get together with these, um, ringette parents and we go on back in the old days when we were allowed to go, uh, you know, for a, a little tournaments and things like that. The best feeling I ever had was I just felt like I was Lily's dad. Like Lily is our daughter who plays ringette. And I, mm-hmm. that's the, the that's my favorite thing in the world is that when people look at me and they're, they're like, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, you know, Alyssa and Lily's dad. Or that's uh, Sonia's husband. Like that, yeah. like to me, that's how I want people to uh, to know me or to, I guess, I, I guess in a long-winded, long-winded way of answering this is I guess I've never really cared what people think of me and the only people that I care about what they think of me, they only know me as Alyssa's dad, Lily's dad 
and Sonia's husband. That's it. Yeah. That's the only thing they they don't know my work and they don't they don't care about my work. And that's I guess at the end of the day, not to say I don't I don't care about our readers at the Athletic or I don't care no, no. about Sense fans. I do, but it just doesn't. If I write a column and people are in the comment section saying, "Man, Mendez, you're terrible," but it actually doesn't affect me because. Really, the only thing you could ever say to me that hurts me is that I'm a bad husband or a bad dad. That that would be the only thing. Any, anything else, it doesn't really matter. Well, don't tell me. the commenters that, Ian. Now you're yeah, giving them ammunition. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I, I got to go look at my column today. You're like, you are a terrible <laughs> ringette coach and dad. That's right. Yeah. That's the natural thing. So I, I love that you're into coaching and teaching. Was there ever a point in your career where you're like, hey, this is, an, this is a, something I'd like to pursue full time? You know what? I just love it. Like, and I've only gotten into coaching the last three years, but I, it is, it is probably the most rewarding thing I've had, uh, Craig, is being able to teach. And I, like I said, I just wrapped up a, a session of teaching uh, college, uh, college journalism at uh, Algonquin College in Ottawa. And I loved mm-hmm. it. And I think I really, truly enjoy the funny thing is if you go back and speak to my uh, journalism professors or my high school teachers they'd be like that guy used to cut corners that guy right. tried to like they would never say that i was like the most uh, attentive studious kid i was you know uh you know not the class clown but i was uh, like i i was never a teacher's pet let me put it that way and now to come along the other side and think like wow like i love teaching i love coaching like i like i i've said this many times like if if i could if i could make a living coaching these girls playing ringette i would do it in a heartbeat like i i just wish uh so if anyone listening to this podcast has like uh you know disposable income and wants to create a high-end ringette program and (laughs) ask me to coach i'd probably be seriously tempted because i love it i love that As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. All right. So, Ian, you went to Carleton. I've learned a little bit that there's there's two uh, powerhouse journalism schools in Canada. It's Ryerson and Carleton. Is that right? Yeah. So how did you end up at Carleton? So I, uh, you know, and it's funny because I went to, to journalism school with Down Goes Brown, Sean McIndoe. Oh, and I nice. were, were We were, uh, in fact, my first ever assignment at journalism school, I got partnered with with Sean McAdoo, with yeah. Down Goes Brown. Oh. Yeah. Like, what are the odds of that? Like, and you guys we, are still podcasting to the, all these years and, later. I love and now that. we're podcast partners. And so, uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a funny thing. But, you know, so for me, I grew up in Vancouver. And I'm one of the rare idiots, Craig, who left the West Coast <laughs> to come to – like, who, who honestly, who would leave Vancouver for Ottawa? Well, it would be me. But yeah. I, I came to journalism school because – at the time, in the 90s, that was the only uh, – that and Ryerson were the two best programs and I was able to get into uh, 
to Carlton. And it's an amazing program. Like, you know, James Duffy uh, is a Carlton grad. Like, I, I don't think Carlton does a good enough job. They've, they've churned out some amazing kind of political uh, government kind of uh, reporters. I don't think they do a good enough job of amplifying the fact that I, I think the, the best broadcaster ever in this country is James Duffy. And he's a Carlton guy. He's amazing. And he, James is unbelievable. James is the gold standard. James is uh, kind of what Bob Costas was for generations or you know decades to some American broadcasters. That that's what James is to us. Is like kind of on that uh, that shortlist. And and he's a Carlton guy. And I don't think we do a good enough job of promoting the fact that James Duffy is a is a Carlton grad. And so it was an amazing program. And I honestly loved you know every uh, uh, you know every minute of getting a chance to be a writer and do radio and uh, and do television. Is it true that um, that down goes Brown emceed your wedding? Yeah, <laughs> isn't that unbelievable? So I, I've so I've, I've brought this up. I say like down goes Brown, like Sean, like I've known Sean since 1994, so yeah. I knew him before he was famous, like before all that. I always say like he emceed our wedding and he told some jokes and you know I always say down goes Brown emceeing my wedding is the equivalent. Of Dominic Hoshik's brief appearance in the Stanley Cup Finals for Chicago in 1992. Because you got a glimpse of this kind of unorthodox, bizarre thing. You're like, I'm very intrigued. I don't know what this is, uh, but I think there's something here. And then Hoshik goes to Buffalo and the rest is history. Like, Sean McAdoo, um, you could see it. Like, I'm like, this guy is like off the charts funny. But it just... We, I guess we were just waiting for the internet to be born and that's what we needed for, uh, for Sean to get his, uh, his, his break like Hashik got in, uh, in Buffalo. I just want to imagine Sean in a journalism class. Like was there some class that was like, okay, here's how to make up fake conversations with Brian Burke. Like I want to know what journalism is being taught there. That's what I'd like to know. Yeah. You know what's funny <laughs> is we actually took in 1998, so our last year in journalism school, we took – a web report, like like the internet was just sort of really in its infancy. Yeah, we took a uh, a course that taught us like eight basic HTML coding. Like we took an actual reporting for the web class together. And I, man, I wish uh, we had access to that those URL links because I'm <laughs> sure maybe maybe he had a conversation back then, fake conversations he made up with, with oh my general managers at the time. That's amazing. So why journalism? What what was it about this industry that attracted you? So I think, and you know, you know, it's funny, Craig, you know what I don't think you know about me? You know where I went to elementary school? No, I don't know this. Ann Arbor, Michigan. What? Yeah. I feel like I've never talked to you about this. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk this through. Yeah. So my dad, uh, you know, when, when we were growing up, my dad worked for an engineering firm in the States called Bechtel Mm -hmm. and Bechtel used to have these kind of essentially job assignments or postings that every few years our family would move. And for so from grade one through uh, grade five, we lived in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Like, Craig, I grew up going to Yost Arena watching Red Berenson's teams. Like my dad, (laughs) one of my favorite things in the world would be a Friday night. My dad would come back and surprise me like we're going to the game and I watch Michigan, Michigan State. Or my dad would take me on a Friday night. And again, it was a surprise. Let's go to Tiger Stadium. And I, I would watch the Tigers. I, I, I grew up right, right there. Like I, like I love Michigan so much, like, cause I have such fond memories. But for me, like, so I grew up watching, uh, you know, the Red Wings mm-hmm. and we would watch, obviously we would get the hockey night in Canada feed. So Saturday nights would be the Leafs or the Habs. And, That's right. um, but for me, like I grew up, I was such a big, sports fan like and and i think this is probably the same story for all of us in sports um you think to yourself you know you want to be a hockey player you want to be a baseball player whatever it is and then at some point you realize that's not going to happen then you look for plan b and the plan b is what if i did sports right like what if i did broadcasting and so for me probably from the time i was in like grade even heck the fourth grade even when i lived in michigan i knew that this is what i wanted to do is is get into broadcasting and get into uh to sports journalism. So I, I think you and I have to be close to the same age. And that era of Detroit sports and even University of Michigan, like there was the Red Wings were a powerhouse. The you know the Pistons were good. You had the bad boy Pistons somewhere in there. Fab five. Like sports had this other 
it was just it, it was so high up the, the importance in the conversation every day and to the point for me like reading the local newspapers and anybody that was covering or calling those games the Ernie Harwell all that like these people were I put them on such a pedestal because sports was such a big deal in that area in that in that era Oh yeah like so I grew up so I left just as the Pistons were winning like I was there from like 82 to 87 type thing but like I like the like the Tigers winning the World Series in 1984. Yeah. I still have a like like programs from that year and ticket stubs and like I like the Red Wings were bad though. Like the first ever game I went to <laughs> in my life I was 9 years old and yeah. and uh I was a Hab my dad was a Habs fan cuz he immigrated when they immigrated to, to Canada in the late 70s the Habs were a powerhouse and so that was his team and I got to go to Joe Louis Arena in the 85-86 season, I saw my first ever game. It was the Habs. But the Red Wings were awful. Like, I think they finished last overall in 85-86, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and that was the Dead Wings era. The Dead Wings, yeah. Back, 40 yeah. points or whatever they had. But, I, I mean, so I – but I always had a soft spot for the Red Wings. Like, in the 90s when they would just – when they couldn't get over the hump mm. uh, in, you know, uh, whether it was the, the, the Leafs beating them in 93 or San Jose in 94 – Devils in 95. Like, I was always waiting for them to get over the hump. And I, I'll, I'll always have a soft spot for the University of Michigan, for the Red Wings, for, uh, you know, the Tigers. Like, it's such a great, it's such a great sports community. So you mentioned your dad emigrated to Canada. What's the, how, what's the backstory there? <laughs> so, if you don't mind sharing. No, yeah, of course. Like, so my parents actually grew up in Tanzania. So, okay. Uh, and, and what's funny is my, my parents were actually my mom was pregnant with me when they moved from Tanzania, which was undergoing you know quite a kind of uh, political upheaval in the seventies. My mom was was pregnant with me when they moved to Canada, and mm. I always laugh and I think to myself like you know when you talk, when you think about statistical odds and things like that, like I always think to myself like when my when my mom was pregnant with me in Tanzania, like what were the odds that their child would grow up to be like a a hockey reporter in Canada, right? Like <laughs> it's astro- yeah, it's astronomical <laughs> to think about the odds of that. I always think like, man, like it just shows you that like like what you said earlier. Luck has such a huge determining factor. Um, there's so many circumstances beyond our control that we have right. no idea, right? So, but yeah, my parents they moved to Canada. They moved to Toronto in uh, in the 70s, and so my dad and my mom thought, you know, we want to get our kids as acclimated into North American culture as much as we can. And so the one thing my dad did is he was right into sports and he got me right into sports. So he be, he was a huge Habs fan. He was a Dallas Cowboys fan because he was just taking, my dad was like the original front runner. Like he was just jumping on bandwagons uh, left, right and center. But uh, that's why I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan to this day uh, is because my dad was a Cowboys fan in the seventies. I love that. And, and so you mentioned your dad was an engineer. Did you, feel any pressure to you know follow that line or where was it pretty do you have a lot of freedom there yeah no so my yeah so my dad worked for an engineering firm but he he did more of like the i guess it would be like kind of project management cost okay. analysis side of things yeah, yeah. but no i never yeah no they it's it's funny you know where i'll give my parents a ton of uh my parents deserve all like most of the credit for me because they put me craig into everything sports related like if i if I, you know, had an interest in tennis, boom, I was in tennis camp. If I wanted to play hockey, I was in hockey. Mm-hmm. If I, if I saw a book, and you know, I always think too, like when you were a kid, did you ever do the Scholastic book orders? Oh my gosh, I love those. Was, those little, was that the those, best oh, day? The like, best, the best day. So, and I still have the book, and I still think it actually had a huge impact on me because I was in, uh, in Michigan at the time. I think it was in grade two or three, and I wanted to order this book called Baseball Stats, like how okay. to figure out. Baseball stats. And this is like before like war and all that. So this is just like, how do you figure out batting average? I still can't figure out ERA, but go ahead. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I remember ordering it from Scholastic, going home with this, the book order and like asking my parents, could I get this book? And they were like, yeah, of course you can get this book. And I, 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 you know, you, you look back at your childhood and you realize all of the things that your parents did for you led you to this path. Like if my parents didn't put me in sports and they didn't, uh, buy me the scholastic books on how to figure out ERA and slugging percentage and all these things. They just fed it and they just continued to feed. Like anytime I wanted a book, like sports related book, it, like it was done. Like I, 
you know, so it, it it was pretty cool. And I think a big part of it too for my parents was they they came from a country where there wasn't a ton of opportunity maybe for younger people. And then they come to this country and or they come to Canada and then they move to the United States. Um, this 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 setup is um, great for, for people who want to try and pursue uh, different avenues. And they, they gave my sister and I every single opportunity to, to kind of pursue our own passions. I've heard like there's this theory of like the immigrant edge, right? Where you have that perspective. Do you feel like your family had like had that? You, you know how you appreciate the opportunity? <laughs> it's funny. You call it the immigrant edge. I would call it like the, the pressure. Like okay. I'll tell you what, like it's so funny. Like um, I, I can even, <laughs> I even remember like I was obsessed with Nintendo. Like the original Nintendo, mm-hmm. right? It's great. So like I'm, you know, I'm playing Nintendo and I'm trying to get the original Super Mario. I'm just trying to finish the game, right? And like my mom was all over me like, hey, we didn't immigrate to this country so you could <laughs> right. take down the Hammer Brothers, right? Like this is, uh, you know, so there, there's, a, there's, yeah, there's quite a, I, I would say it's an interesting pressure that falls on the kids of immigrants. Like when you mm. come to this country and your parents give you these opportunities like you better you you better take advantage of them right you better not um like you know they, they like my parents were hard on me for mm-hmm. like like school and like I, if i came back with like a like a b minus it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't good enough so there's uh it's a double edged sword i think it's uh it's certainly when you have parents that that are immigrants they're they're appreciative of the opportunities but at the same time like there's a pressure on you to to take advantage of it because they, otherwise they're like, we, we didn't immigrate here for you to, to be watching Saved by the Bell and, 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 <laughs> and, and playing Super Mario. Right, right, right. <laughs> I, I read something you were described um, as the moral compass of the Ottawa media. And, and I, I liked that description of you because I feel that way sometimes, right? You, you do seem to have that moral compass. Where, do you, where If you agree with that, where do you think that came from? Well, you know, it's, it's – a- it's a tough one because I think mm-hmm. if if you have a moral compass, you don't want to come off as <laughs> you can't say you have a moral ju- compass. No, no. Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> oh. there's that. Yeah, there's that. Yeah. And so, yeah. I'm super humble. <laughs> yeah, um. yeah, yeah. You know, I think it's my humility that makes me <laughs> great. Right. Yeah. No, I think uh, it's a tricky one, right? Because yeah. I think um, you don't want to come off as preachy, right? Like mm. that. One of the worst things is, um, you know, yeah, is 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 trying to talk down to people and and like. I think what I've tried to do and it, where maybe that moral compass thing comes from, I've tried really hard in the last few years in particular to try and use my my, my platform on social media, uh, on the airwaves, where, wherever it is, beyond sports and, mm-hmm. and, and try to make people better people. Um, and, but, but also understanding that I'm not a perfect person, that I, I have a ton to learn. And I, like, so I think, but part of the moral compass pro- stuff comes from the fact that I think in this market, I have been the most outspoken person when it comes to women's rights, mm-hmm. minority rights, uh, transgender rights, gay rights. Like I've, I've tried to learn, especially on those last two areas where I can tell you 10 or 15 years ago, Craig, I wouldn't have been the guy saying, you know, we should fight for equal rights for, um, you know, for gay and lesbian and transgender people. That wouldn't have been me. But now that I've learned about the path uh, that they've gone through, it's important that people like me use my platform to amplify their voices because, uh, you know, I I think to myself, I'm, look, I'm in a, in an interracial marriage and I think to myself, uh, there's people that probably don't think my wife and I should be married. Or 30 years ago, there's places where you couldn't have been in an interracial marriage. And so it's important that when you have the platform, um, that you use it. And that's basically the way I've, I've, I've tried to look at my platform. I've tried to say, uh, I'm going to use it. And I, I just, I get really disappointed if some people think, uh, this guy's just trying to be woke. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't care about that. I just, I want to do the right thing, but I don't want to make you on the other side feel bad. If you don't agree with me, that's okay. That's totally fine. Um, I just want you to understand where I'm coming from and what I'm trying to do and how I've improved. Like, I've, you know, I don't want to be the same person. I'm, I just, you know, 44 now. I'd like to think that I'm a different person at 44 than I was at 34. And, but what's most important is I want to be a, 
better and different person at 54. Like there is no, there is no right. finish line. There is no, yes, I did it. I, I am, uh, you know, I, I've reached uh, the, the point where I want to get. So I think that's probably where some of the moral compass stuff comes from is I think I'm the one person in this market um, that kind of pushes that narrative a little bit more, but I'm also the one uh, visible minority who covers mm -hmm. this team. I'm the one uh, prominent visible minority um, in the Ottawa sports landscape, and I'm, I'm mindful of that. Hmm. Is there, when you talk about that, that growth and, and that kind of inner desire to, to, to change, how do you, how do you go about doing, are, are you like a reader? Are you a, 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 like, how do you go about making sure you're constantly growing in whatever that is? So I think one of the most important things, and, and this is what's really fascinating too, is I think, and maybe this is why I love coaching and teaching young people is that I think it's really important to learn from young people. And I think the generation behind us or two generations behind us, there's so much more, there's so much more open-minded about gender, about race, about things that like people, Craig, like you and I, if you grew up in the nineties yeah. or eighties or nineties, like we had a different approach and we saw things in a different way. And I don't think that this generation, this, this latest kind of, uh, generation sees the world that way. And I think it's that, that's, so one of the things I try really hard to do is, is connect with young people and understand how they see the world. Like, uh, like that, that's important to me. And I think I don't want to be one of those people that's like, you know, in my day, we Different. had to do this and that, or we, you know, we like, I don't want, um, like I think about myself too. Like, uh, you know, I, I dealt with some, you know, kind of racist, uh, undertones in in the hockey world uh um, yeah. you know 20 years ago i don't want a young brown reporter coming in and dealing with that and my response being wow i had to go through that 20 years ago no right. i i'd like the world to be easier for you right like so i think that's important like, the one thing where i as i try to grow and learn like for me it's it's just being be super open-minded be flexible but but learn from young instead of trying to teach young people i think it's important we try and learn from them mm. I'm gonna end it on that. That's such a great point, Ian. And we're we are we already blew past our time, so I <laughs> yeah. want to be respectful of your afternoon. But this was, I mean, this was such an easy, fun conversation, and I appreciate you doing it. My pleasure. And one day we'll have to have a chat about uh, some Ann Arbor stuff. Down yeah. Well, well, I mean, you know, I'm a Michigan State guy, so yeah, I do exactly. I do have to tolerate that. But no, I. I but I, it's funny. <laughs> we are the same. When you said you're 44, we are the same age. And I, yeah. you know, I grew up a Michigan fan. So like that era and, you know, rooting for Michigan and it was, it was a fun time and, and it's, you know, I'm still in Detroit and it's, I feel bad for the fans now because, you know, we launched the Athletic Detroit in, during a time when every single team was rebuilding that every, you know, Harbaugh wasn't working. It was just like this, the market, and you know how good it can be, is so hungry for something to root for. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, exactly. But hey, listen, my, uh, my pleasure to join you. Thanks, Ian. I want to thank Ian Mendez for joining the podcast. Ian is such a good dude. I don't, I, I don't know Ian well. He's one of those people. Are, uh, let me rephrase that. I, I feel like I know him really well, and I, I don't. But um, it's just because he's one of the most genuine people. When you talk to him off the air, it's the same as if you're listening to him on a podcast or seeing him on TV or on the radio. He's he's great, and there's a reason he is trusted amongst hockey fans and Ottawa Senators fans. It's why he's trusted with his sources and he's able to relay accurate inside information. Um, he's he's a great dude and it was fun to hear a bit of his story and get to know him um, a little bit better. Uh, a couple of things before we wrap up. Um, make sure you check out a couple of our other hockey podcasts. Jim Rutherford joined Scott Burnside and Pierre Lebrun this week uh, on Two Man Advantage edition of the Athletic Hockey Show. Of course, make sure you're checking out Ian Mendez and his old classmate, Sean McIndoo, on their version of the Athletic Hockey Show on Thursdays in the Athletic. It's so awesome. Uh, and there's going to be a live trade deadline Athletic Hockey Show to watch on YouTube at theathletic.com on Monday from 2 to 3.30 Eastern. Also, Elliot Friedman, a good friend of the podcast. <laughs> Talk about good people. What a good dude. He joined uh, Jonas Siegel and James Myrtle this week on the Leaf Report. All trade deadline talk on their podcast. Great conversation. Uh, and speaking of Myrtle, I wanted to take a second 
and talk about his story that he wrote recently on Jack Campbell, the Leaf Scully. If you haven't read this story, this is not a promo. This is just something I wanted to share with you. If you haven't read this, go find it because it was such a great story about Jack um, for a couple of reasons. One, it, it detailed just how difficult the last few years have been for Jack. Um, Jack Campbell came in to the NHL as a high draft pick uh, with the Dallas Stars. Not only that, going back before that was seen as like the next great savior of American goaltending with his world junior success. So much pressure on him. And this sense that James that, that James got from Jack was was this huge uh, amount of pressure he put on himself, how disappointed he was he didn't make the NHL at 18 as a goalie. Like that's talk about when we hype people up as prospects sometimes I don't think we realize it, you know they they're put that that pressure goes on their shoulders and Jack Campbell was as hyped a prospect way back in the day as any goalie I can remember. And I think of all this um kind of especially in light of what's happening with Carter Hart with the Flyers and you know these Young goalies, um, it's such a mental game. And when they start trying to do too much and, and play outside their capabilities, uh, there was some some thoughts from people close to Jack Campbell in that story. Mike Valley especially said, you know, when, when he started to try to do too much, it, it just becomes, um, I think somebody made the golf analogy. When you're golfing and you're trying to swing as hard as you possibly can, when you're um, trying too hard, it's it's the worst thing you can possibly do. And, and goaltending is the same way. And you have to play within yourself. And it was um, it was a long, sometimes dark and difficult path for Jack Campbell. And and what struck me is if you talked to Jack at all during this time, if you caught him at the rink, um, I remember. I went to a world championships where he represented team USA and he played for them. You never would have known it. Just talking to him, just a happiest guy, uh, sweet personality. You'd talk to Jack and you'd just be like, wow, what a, what a great kid. He's got it all together. And you have no idea what he was dealing with. Um, no clue. And I don't know. It just, it really struck me that we, we don't realize, especially right now in what's been one of the most difficult seasons, um, for a lot of these players and a lot of these teams in in recent history they're playing every other day they're away from friends and family they're you know they're battling covid you see what's happening with vancouver there's so much mental strain on these players and i i don't know we all just something to think about as we are lobbing grenades at people when they're not performing up to our expectations or we lose patience with a young player or a young goalie it's not always a linear line and with Jack Campbell, it certainly wasn't. And when you have people that believe in you and you're able to find people to surround yourself with, as Jack was able to do along the way with people like Mike Valley and various um, coaches that have helped him, um, you know, the, you can get through these things. And it's really easy now for me to sit knowing Jack's full, complete story. And I'm my guess is we're only getting the, the tip of the iceberg in, in a story like that. Um, it makes him really easy to root for. And um, I can't recommend that that story enough. Um, and I will plug it this way. If you're not subscribing to The Athletic, you can get a discount if you go to theathletic.com slash full60 to read that story by James Myrtle on Jack Campbell. Great story. Who knows now? Maybe Jack Campbell returns to his spot as an American goalie to watch internationally. There's an Olympics coming up. Some great options for the Americans. And now Jack Campbell's back in that conversation. And how awesome is that? I love that. All right, that is it. Thank you for listening. Thanks again to Ian Mendes for joining the podcast and have a great week. <laughs>